Good morning, everybody. I hope you all have had a great weekend. Thank you all for being a part of this class. Uh, if you're new, I have syllabi up on the front. You can grab one of those after class. And we're also sending out the notes each week with links uh, to the videos and different things that we've used in class. So we'd love for you to, to um, be a part of that email list. And so if I don't already have your email or you're not getting those and you want to uh, be a part of that uh, weekly mailing, be sure to let us know. We'll get you on that list. Um, our class is entitled Jesus Was a Refugee, and if you're new, I want to uh, have a quick review, and then uh, Roger's going to start sharing this morning. But t- today we tackle uh, the Bible and forced migration, so we're going to start looking at uh, the many scriptures that deal with uh, migration and refugees and immigration uh, and so forth. I want to remind you each week of our class goals, just so that we can kind of stay focused. It's a really complex issue. And we could go in a hundred different directions, maybe a thousand different directions. Uh, but we want to raise awareness over, over the refugee crisis that we're dealing with today in 2016. It's wide, it's large. We focus primarily on the Syrian crisis. There's many people groups in the world, of course, that are struggling with, with uh, immigration, f- uh, forced migration. Uh, but we want to raise awareness, particularly about the Syrian crisis. We want to cultivate compassion. These are real families with real children, and they're really struggling. And so there's so much uh, that we can learn um, that, that I think will, will um, create in us a heart of compassion for these, for these folks that are enduring this trial. We want to train volunteers, and you'll notice that on our syllabus, the last three weeks of class is devoted to that. And so our partners at World Relief will come in, and they'll share over the last three weeks. And when you leave this class, you'll be a certified World Relief volunteer. Uh, they do require some um, certification process, because they're federally funded, uh, they need folks to go through uh, a little bit of training with them. And so we're excited to, to, to allow them to do that and produce some more volunteers within our Creek. Uh, and then ultimately, we want to mobilize you guys. Uh, there's so many things in Nashville that you could be doing that you'd be a part of if you're not already. I know many of you are. Uh, but if you're not already, there's many easy, great ways to plug into the refugee community here that has been resettled. And we can help them and their families. And so that's, those are the four things we want to get to. Um, I want to just remind you, I'm not going to read it again, but last week, if you missed it, was an award-winning poem by Warsaw Shire called Home. This has been circulated all over the web. She's won awards. Uh, she's of Middle Eastern descent and lives, I think, currently in London, but really, really moving poem that, that sums up in a, a succinct way what uh, a refugee uh, might be experiencing. And so if you... Uh, like I said, we're a part of that email list. I sent a link to that. But I'd love for you to revisit that poem or visit that if you don't know it already. Fantastic photograph uh, that captures, I think, a lot of the, the heart behind what people might be experiencing. Of course, Syria is situated in the heart of the Middle East there, and they have, uh, folks have scattered into neighboring countries. 60% are living, we think, as urban refugees, which means they're living illegally in some border country. Uh, just trying to make a new life for themselves under the radar. Very difficult circumstance. Many have landed in refugee camps, uh, ones that look like this. Some of them are operated by UNHCR, you know, an arm of the United Nations that works specifically for and with refugees. Uh, we talked about the migratory routes that are, are pr- prevalent, I guess, in this crisis. There's, there's the uh, eastern route through the Baltic, the Baltic states and Turkey. There's the central route, which is northern Africa, and one pictured here that you don't see is the western route, which connects, uh, which connects Africa and Spain. 
the central route being the most perilous, and this is where you're seeing a lot on the news about ships capsizing in the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, this year, 3,700 deaths so far, uh, most of them happening here on the central route, which is, you know, as a result of uh, the currents and the nature of the vessels and the smuggling um, black market, I guess, uh, that's, that's making this central route so perilous. Uh, so we talked a little bit about the, the perilous nature of that journey last week, and you can find uh, umpteen photographs and stories and um, things online about, about that dangerous journey. Uh, this is one of the Grecian landings where you can see they're pulling these tattered vessels ashore and people are, are uh, hanging on for dear life. We talked about this particular map here, which, which does show you the danger of that central route uh, and how many folks are, are losing their life in the, in the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, we continue to stress the importance of terms. You know, there's, there's so um, many nuanced terms in this discussion. If you're not careful, you can enter into the discussion and be unaware of all the, the, the particulars and get lost in, in the, um, some of the political part of the discussion, the economic part of the discussion, uh, and certainly the biblical part of the discussion if we're not understanding what we're naming. What we're talking about in this class is the refugee crisis, and the refugee in the, in the very specific sense of this legal designation as determined by the United Nations and the U.S. And so last week we, we talked specifically about the path to the U.S., and so we really want to hone in on the word refugee. Um, this is a person who is unable or unwilling to return to his or her home country because of a well-rounded fear of persecution due to these number of factors. And so this is, a, this is something that is legally determined under international law by the United Nations. And of course, for the refugees that we accept here in the U.S., it's even further scrutinized, okay, who exactly is, is facing this well-rounded fear of persecution due to race, membership in a social group, political opinion, religion, and national origin. So we're really talking about a tiny sliver of legal immigrants, right? So these are legal documented immigrants that are a subset of, of, of larger discussions that we're not having, right? So we're, we're honing in on a very specific sliver. So 1% of the folks who are actually uh, refugees in this world are achieving resettlement. So we're talking about 1% out of the 16.1 million who have achieved refugee status, 1% uh, of them are actually being re resettled in, a, in what's called a third country, in other words, they scatter into asylum in these neighboring countries, Jordan, uh, Lebanon, and so forth. And then, so that's their second country, the second country of asylum, this first country of asylum. But then there's a third country involved, which is where they might be resettled, like Canada, like the U.S., uh, and others that are participating. So we talked very uh, specifically last week about that path to the United States. There's three uh, priorities that the United States has outlined. I'm not going to go back through those, but... We talked about those priority levels and those very specific uh, priority levels that the U.S. uses. These are the most vetted immigrants uh, that, that the U.S. Uh, sees or welcomes. So these folks that are entering go through many agencies, many hoops, uh, many channels in order to, to be accepted here. So as I said, today we cover uh, the Bible and migration. So a big topic, the Old Testament has a lot to say about it. Roger's going to share and we're going to do our best to record this whole class. We've been a little spotty with our recording, uh, but thank you.
So, yes. So, as we think through the Bible and, and examples of uh, forced immigration, migration of one type or another, when we start thinking about it from that perspective, we realize there are many, many stories in the Bible. So many of the ones that are germane to who the Jews were and then who we are as Christians coming through that, that, that Jewish line and through, through Christ. Uh, the theologian Orlando Espen has said, Welcoming the stranger, the immigrant we could say today, is the most often repeated commandment in Hebrew scriptures with the exception of the imperative to worship only the one God. And the love of neighbor, especially the more vulnerable neighbor, is doubtlessly the New Testament's constant command. Whatever the cause of immigration today, there can be no doubt as to where the church must stand when it comes to defending the immigrant. Why do you think that might be, that this is, uh, at least according to Espen, the, uh, one of the most repeated commands in all of the Hebrew scriptures? Welcoming the stranger. Why might that be so important to, for God to emphasize to his people? Yeah? It seems like it's a theme throughout the entire Bible that we as human beings we grasp to climb the ladder mm -hmm. and you know and kind of like the caterpillars climbing the, the the hill and just shedding off anything that's holding us back that's right and so it's as though god's trying to remind us he's on the side of the downtrodden yep he wants to equalize everything so that we're all equal uh, absolutely we, we see it through throughout the throughout the entire bible for sure that that theme and it's a theme that i think we can miss if we're not actually really trying to look at it from this perspective. Um, uh, and in one sense of what, what you're saying, every one of us is an immigrant, right? We have all, none of us are, are Native Americans. Uh, none of us in here are. We might, some of you may have some uh, Native American blood in you, but even among Native Americans, we can go and trace. Everyone is an immigrant. And even in another spiritual sense, uh, that we're all just here for a short time. But uh, even more specifically, can you think about anything in Jewish history that might make this an important commandment to the Jews? Well, the Jews themselves were immigrants into the new world. In exactly. Fact, God commands them, uh, I forget which one of the peoples, it says, this people did not welcome you when you were going by. And so they're not godly. Right. Yes, exactly. Because their being forced in migration was very, very much a part of their history, their defining narrative, their defining story. So we see in Leviticus 19, just one of many, many places where this commandment is given to them. When an alien, immigrant, foreigner, stranger resides with you in your land, you shall not oppress or mistreat the alien. The alien who resides with you shall be to you as the citizen, a native-born Israelite among you. You shall love the alien as yourself, for you are aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. I am Yahweh your God. Primarily took this from the NRSV, but in brackets I've put some uh, other translations. So that word alien there at the very beginning in 33, is in other translations translated immigrant or foreigner or stranger. Um, and then citizen is also uh, 
translated native-born Israelite. Um, but there's a Hebrew term, ger, that is used uh, some 92 times or so in the Hebrew Bible. That is this word translated here, alien, or immigrant, or foreigner, uh, depending upon the context uh, of where it's used in some of those other places in your translation. It's sometimes uh, translated sojourner or um, resident alien, which is really sort of the, the concept here, the alien who resides, a, a resident alien. So this term used throughout the Old Testament, talk about different characters, but this is why it was so important for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. So that was a big defining part of who they were and therefore for them to remember to treat others who might be uh, aliens in their land, to treat them with respect, not to mistreat them, not to oppress them, is what it says. Um, so what we want to do is just spend uh, the next few minutes really sort of doing a quick Old Testament survey and thinking about a number of characters, a number of stories in the Old Testament that do uh, uh, bear out this point of uh, the forced migration and immigrants, etc. So just to begin with, the, the, the father of the Jews and Abraham, tell me a little bit about his story. How, how did he migrate? to a land he would show him. That's right. Which was what we would probably call Lebanon or northern Israel. Okay, yep. Right. I, I didn't know that, but uh, yeah, land, what he, he called Canaan, right? right. <laughs> yep, exactly. So God called him to migrate. And so he was, as in the story of the Jews, the father of the Jews, one of the very first migrants that we could talk about. And in fact, there's, there's another specific story are you guys familiar with this with this painting? Yes. What what is this? I don't remember. I don't know the name of it. I know the description of it. Okay. Go ahead. I mean, we have the we have a depiction of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and God, the Trinity. Okay. And it's a it's it's an example of of all three of them communing together. Mm. Communing with us as human beings. That's right. That's right. Yes, it's known as, as the Trinity. I've, I've got a small reproduction here. I'll pass it around, mm -hmm. let you guys look at it as well. But yeah, it's known as the Trinity. Uh, Andrei Rublev, um, so Rublev's Trinity, a 14th to 15th century Russian Orthodox. So it's not just, it's not just a painting, it's what's known in the Orthodox Church, or really even the Catholic Church, as an icon, right? An icon meaning that by spending time looking at it, you can in some way uh, discern a truth of God, see the image of God in some way. And so, yeah, it's, we, the more popular name is the Trinity, but it's also known as the hospitality of Abraham. Do you remember the story? And that's why I'm bringing up while we're talking about Abraham. Do you remember this story in Genesis 18, the Oaks of Mamre, where um, Abraham and Sarah are camped out here and they're visited by, it gets a little bit strange, the story does, because it's talking about, it uses the formal name of God, Yahweh, the Lord Yahweh. They're visited by Yahweh, but they're also visited by three men. So the story is important here from the standpoint of 
again, showing the hospitality that we're to extend to the stranger. But yes, so, so Rublev is, is certainly interpreting these three men and many other scholars, theologians, as was mentioned, the Trinity. Three members, uh, three persons of the, uh, of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. Uh, and, uh, but just that story of how Abraham uh, and Sarah brought them in and humanity fed God. It's a very, very important principle for us to think about as we think about what we're supposed to be doing with our fellow humans who are also made in the image of God. So to join in to that, that fellowship, that relationship that exists among these three that we, that we call the Trinity. And one other very uh, interesting side note is there's a little rectangle here that many um, uh, scholars, uh, those who study art, are just trying to figure out you know, what that was. But um, there's actually some residue that appears to be some residue of glue in that place. And so many people, including Richard Rohr, believe that there was at one time a mirror stuck on the icon so that when someone was observing the icon, you would see yourself sitting at the table with, sitting in fellowship with the Trinity. Oh, very interesting. So yeah, Abraham for sure. Uh, if we go to his grandson, uh, Jacob, uh, what happened early in the life of Jacob with his twin brother that caused Jacob to have a bit of forced migration himself? stole the birthright, he stole the blessing of Isaac, and Rebecca said, you better get away to, so you don't have to endure the wrath of, of Esau, right? And then, of course, his favorite son, uh, Joseph, had a little bit of forced migration himself. Uh, brothers very, very jealous of him. They were going to kill him, but uh, one of the brothers, I forget, Reuben maybe, said, no, 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 let's just sell him into slavery. Midianites, Midianites, I forget. Uh, someone, uh, they sold him into slavery and he was taken to Egypt. So he became a migrant, a resident alien in Egypt. And actually things worked out rather well for him after spending some time in prison, right? So he became, uh, so initially we might say he was an oppressed refugee, uh, but he certainly rose through the ranks and became the second most powerful, and then was certainly um, uh, uh, seen by Pharaoh as, uh, as, as someone who was uh, worthwhile to invest his time in, as someone who was uh, uh, to be treated fairly. But then we go back, and Jacob comes back into the story again later because of the, uh, uh, the famine, right? And so fam because Joseph and the, had, had led the organizational effort to store up uh, food, uh, this famine that happened throughout the Middle East forced the migration of Jacob and his other brothers into Egypt, where they stayed, uh, again with favor initially, but later on another pharaoh or other pharaohs came along and they were not treated fairly. They were oppressed. 
they did become slaves to the Egyptians. So that being one of the, the very, very defining aspects of the uh, Judeo-Christian uh, narrative. It's slavery that took place there. Moses himself, as we're furthering that, that, that Jewish story, he uh, was uh, native to Egypt, right? But he, he fled Egypt for what reason? Pardon? Murder. Yes. He, he murdered one of the Egyptian uh, slave masters, right? Uh, and so he felt like he had, had to leave in order to, uh, to spare his life. And uh, he went to Midian, I believe it was. And, but then, of course, later on came back and was a huge part of the story of the Israelites being able to, to leave their captivity in, uh, in Egypt. Uh, when you think about the story of Ruth, uh, Ruth was not an Israelite. She was not a Jew. She was from Moab, and yet she was living in uh, Judah. And uh, later on, I forget, it seems like it was a famine as well, that she went back to Moab. And uh, so again, we see again these types of migration, forced migrations due to external circumstances. Uh, causing someone to have to leave their home and resettle somewhere else. Uh, and in her case, she's very important because she's a part of the, uh, the lineage of Christ, right? She's in that lineage that Matthew talks to us about. Uh, she is the, I think, great-grandmother of uh, King David. So a very important non-Israelite to the, the history of, of Israel and the Jews. A couple of weeks ago when we were talking about the place of Syria in biblical history, we talked a little bit about the, uh, the Assyrians, the Assyrian Empire. You know, after the uh, united monarchy of uh, Saul, David, and Solomon, uh, we had the divided kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, and at some point uh, about 722 B.C. or so, the Assyrian Empire utterly destroyed this northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, really, we don't know historically what happened to them at that point, but we do know that, that many of them, whatever, what happened to them uh, eventually, we know at that point that they were taken into Assyrian captivity. So again, another forced migration and uh, a lot of speculation on what eventually happened to the 10 lost tribes of, of Israel. So the, the northern kingdom made up those, those 10 lost tribes. Um, but I had another point. Maybe it'll come back in a moment. Um, but, but yeah, again, this, this, this whole idea of um, uh, that they were they were forced. Oh, I know what it was. Uh, many people think that the the northern kingdom of Israel, or at least the people who wound up replacing them in this same land, are the Samaritans that we know from the New Testament. So, not entirely sure if it were some of the uh, northern kingdom Israelites are interbreeding with the other folks, but uh, uh, Samaria was the capital of the Northern Kingdom of Israel. So that's how the term Samaritans. So. 
And then finally, another huge, huge important story in the, uh, the history of Jews is the Babylonian captivity. So the northern kingdom was taken over by the Assyrians. A few years later, uh, about a century later, uh, the southern kingdom of Judah was devastated. The Solomon's temple destroyed by the Babylonians when the Babylonians came in. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned that our later Hebrew history is not nearly as good as our early Hebrew history. And a lot of that is because uh, we don't have Sunday school stories uh, on later Hebrew history. We don't have a lot of stories on that divided kingdom stuff. But there are a few things. Um, uh, first of all, just, just to mention that uh, the 137th Psalm, uh, just to sort of get an idea of how devastating it was to the Jews to be, for their temple to have been destroyed, the temple where they, they uh, from their perspective, this was the residence of God, of Yahweh. They were such a temple-oriented people. Why it was important 100, 150 years later for them to rebuild that temple. But this lament from the 137th Psalm, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. So they really felt like they could not have this close relationship with God because they were no longer where his temple was that Yahweh resided there, and you know, they're, they're lost, they're devastated. In fact, this is the psalm whose last line has that dis, uh, disturbing uh, point. Uh, uh, Blessed are, are, are those who, um, who dash their young ones' heads against the rocks. But when you think about it from the standpoint of lament and how uh, emotionally devastated they were, uh, by being in captivity. It helps us again to understand the refugee, to understand someone who's been forcibly uh, migrated. So. But yeah, a couple of those stories that we do remember from Sunday school, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these are all stories in Babylonian captivity, right? And then we might not have had Sunday school stories about them, but a little bit later, the stories of Zerubbabel and Jeshua returning back to the native land uh, from Babylon. They, uh, they were responsible for uh, um, rebuilding the city wall. Is that right? I'm getting confused. So is it the city wall or the temple? No, it was the city wall, and then Ezra sort of restored the law in Nehemiah, the temple. Is that right? I believe that's, I believe that's correct. So all of these stories very, very... Hmm? Nehemiah is the wall. Nehemiah is the wall. Okay. So Zerubbabel and Jeshua were working on the temple. All right. Good. Good. Uh, so all of the, again, uh, you, you see when, we, when the Jews would think back on their history, how important the story of the resident alien forced migration was to, to their history and who they were as a people. All right, so a few minutes left. We'll kind of transition to the New Testament, and we'll, we'll spend all of next week as well helping lay out this theme. Larry mentioned the theme, and, and Roger as well, but, you know, anytime um, you tackle an issue like this, you don't, you don't want to proof text, right? You don't want to just go to a, a verse and say, see, there, there, there we're supposed to care for the refugee group. And so I think it's much more effective to look at 
these types of things. They're, they're the Judeo-Christian trajectory. And, and it's really clear when you piece all that together, you know, really that we're talking about a theme that's dear to the heart of God. And uh, we don't necessarily need a verse that says in Nashville in 2016, you need to care for refugees in this situation. You know, it's so clear when you look at the entire history that, um, that what God cares about is the marginalized. What God cares about are the ones that have been pushed to the edges. And I think that clearly, you know, in 2016, in our context, uh, this is a group that is pushed out. This is a group that is hurting and vulnerable. And so that's why we care. That's why we raise compassion. Um, I don't want to rush through a bunch of things. We have way more material than we, than we can cover today. And so I just, I'll just hit a few highlights. Let me, let me start by saying this. Um, well, this first, you know, our class title has been uh, at the center of our discussion. And it's maybe no coincidence that Jesus was born into that population. Right. I think as we look at Matthew chapter two and we look at Herod's intent on wiping out these Jewish boys that he's heard rumors of this king, this prophecy, this this person that's going to take his power away, maybe. Um, And so we see uh, Joseph and Mary flee to Egypt um, at the tip of the Magi. They say, right, Herod's coming after you. You need to you need to get out. And so they get out. And here he is, this infant child who steps into the plight of the refugee. And surely there's no, um, there's no real coincidence there. And so as we think about the incarnation, we think a lot about um, how Jesus takes on uh, poverty and, and now he's with the, the refugees and he takes on, he kind of comes into a life of scandal and marginalization. And so here he is in Egypt and we, we don't know how long, but I would assume it's for a couple of years or so or more. Um, but uh, Philippians chapter two mentions this this same notion this this what what Jesus is created into how he's planted in this world uh, though he was in the form of God did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited but emptied himself and the NRSV says taking the form of a slave NIV says a servant being born in human likeness being found in human form he humbles himself and so. We get the notion that he's very intentional about the body that he steps into. He doesn't step into the body of the privileged or the rich, the, the ones who are in power. He, he steps into the, the group of the population that is without power, that is without money. Uh, we see it with the Hebrew writer there as well. He says he had to become like his brothers and sisters in every respect um, so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. We see that theme in, in, in Hebrews as well. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. And so, and we'll, we don't, I'm not going to talk about the Sermon on the Mount today, but we see that theme, that trajectory running through the New Testament as well as the Old, is that the, that fa- the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they're identifying with the weak. They're identifying with the ones who have been pushed aside. And, and is very intentional in terms of his priesthood about who he's going to represent, who he's going to be with, and who he's going to commune with. Um, this is another trajectory piece. I don't think it necessarily um, underpins uh, our theological basis for welcoming the stranger, but it's really a um, pretty telling passage here in Matthew chapter 25. Uh, you are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom. This is, a, this is kind of this picture of judgment, right? And you got sheep and goats and people are getting separated. 
And he says, um, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. Of course, later the goats are saying, you know, what? You know, we, didn't, we didn't see anybody hungry. We didn't see strangers. Uh, he's like, I'm sorry. You know, you, this was really simple. This was really apparent. And so I'm not going to draw a lot of conclusions today. I'm just going to kind of lay out these trajectories. And, and we'll talk about maybe some conclusions next week. But I think these two, particularly incarnation and judgment, are some uh, really specific themes, I think, that, that run through a lot of Scripture. And we could draw a lot of conclusions on. Um, I think in the interest of time, I want to skip to one that might be most important for today. So next week, we'll come back to Luke 10. We'll talk about the Good Samaritan, which is probably our best theological study for um, welcoming the stranger. But let's talk about this one briefly, and then I have a video I want to share. Um, some of you all might know, but my wife and I, we adopted a, ch- a child, and she's from Ethiopia originally. And so in, back in that day, she's, she's turning six here this month, uh, but back in that day, she was an infant, and we thought a lot about citizenship and just, you know, the practical considerations there and, and obtaining citizenship. And so we went through a long process. It was about a two-year process for the, for the legal adoption to occur. And so we made one trip to Ethiopia, and uh, the point of that trip was to get through the Ethiopian courts and to make her legally ours in the eyes of the Ethiopian government. So that was kind of part one. But then part two was a return trip, and that, the goal of that trip was to obtain her U.S. visa, right? This was to help her make the transition to the U.S., so it was really more about bringing her to our home. So I'll never forget the, the, um, the specific law or the specific um, you know, process is that you, you go secure that visa in Ethiopia at the American Embassy, and then when you return a home, that when you bring that child into the U.S., she becomes a U.S. citizen. The, in other words, the, the process is made complete when the airplane touches down. And so when she touches American soil, it's this beautiful moment where she actually becomes an American citizen at that point. I just never forget about reading, reading that and understanding that part of the process. And I think as Christians, of course, we have this uh, very prevalent theme of citizenship. And we think a lot about citizenship. And, you know, many in our church have done beautiful work here in recent months and classes and different things, Josh and sermons, addressing this notion of citizenship. Um, Dr. Camp, Lee Camp, talks about it a lot. He hates it when I say doctor. Sorry, sorry, Dr. Camp. Um, <laughs> Lee. Um, but not that he's going to be listening to this class. But <laughs> uh, wishful thinking, maybe. Uh, uh, Laura does, I think. So uh, there's a lot of practical considerations about citizenship and what that means for us as Christ people. Um, we believe that the kingdom of God is an actual politic, right? This is, this is real. Our citizenship is not first and foremost to this country, this physical country, the USA. Our citizenship, we believe, is quite practically, not just in a spiritual sense, but quite practically in another place. And Paul, Peter, Jesus, over and over again, that theme pops up of citizenship. And they remind, of course, their largely Jewish audience that, hey, don't forget, this is the Jewish, this is the Jewish history as well. This is the Judeo-Christian trajectory that we're talking about, that we are all citizens in a new kingdom, 
and it is now and it's not yet. So many wonderful things we could we could draw from that. But uh, let me let me go through a few of those, and then I want to show you videos we close today. But we'll, and we'll revisit this a little bit next week because I realize I'm I'm scratching the surface. The Hebrew writer. Uh, this theme is really uh, prevalent in his letter. All these people were still living by faith when they died. Of course, he's talking about this great cloud of witnesses and all the, the great men and women of faith who've gone on before. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. Right? This was a very common theme to the Jewish mind, that we were once um, outcasts, that we were foreigners, that we were wanderers, we were migrants. Um, and our, our home was in heaven with, with the Father. Um, Paul writes to the church in Galatia. Of course, I love this passage. Pivotal, pivotal verse for understanding uh, discipleship in 2016. There's not, there's not nationality. There's not, there's not gender. There's not all of these human constructs that are going to inhibit us anymore. Our citizenship, our path, our belonging uh, is, is otherworldly. It's out there. It's with the Father. It's not uh, here at home, uh, what we call physical home. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, Paul, again, remember that you were at that time without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth, sp speaking to Gentiles, helping them sort of adopt the story that once you were not apart, but now you are apart. Uh, you, were, you were strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ, you were once who were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So there's this, this project of making more people us, right? You're moving away from them and you're, you're being included into this new kingdom. Uh, later in this Philippian letter, our citizenship is in heaven and it is from there that we're expecting a savior the Lord Jesus. Peter, since you uh, call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. And so um, this kind of has 